that our life is hid with Christ on high, that, that things below may trouble us. Even in this room might unsettle us. Things may try to drag our souls down and, and let us lose hope. Satan will assail all of his army to discourage us and to tempt us to fall away. But when we look up, we see Jesus high, exalted above the heavens, and our hope is there. My, my name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, go and grab, grab it and open it to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. If, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black pew Bible in the seat in front of you. A little black hardcover book. That's on page 1064. Page 1064. And if, it, and if this is the first time that you've used the Bible, the, the big numbers are chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. We're continuing our series through the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to be going through the whole chapter of chapter 7. So let me read it to you, starting from verse 1. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one, without this lineage, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. In a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people receive the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belonged to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it's evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, who had not become a priest based on legal regula regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, 
You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he ever lives or always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once, for all time, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be mature Christians. We want senses that are trained to be able to distinguish between good and evil. And we're trying this morning to understand your word. So we ask God that you would hear our prayer. Help us to understand this chapter by the power of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. My dad could beat your dad in a fight. <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever said that to someone else before? Probably in second grade? Maybe last week? What do kids mean when they say, my dad could beat your dad in a fight? Well, usually... They mean sincerely that they think that their dad could take on your dad. But what they mean is something a little more than that. See, if, if my dad could take on your dad, then that means that I must have better genes than you do. Which means if he's better than, than your dad, then that means that, that I'm better than you. In this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews is doing something similar. He's making a comparison in order to make a point. He's saying, my priest is better than yours. See, the author of Hebrews is writing to people that are following Jesus but seem to be tempted in some way to return back to old Jewish practices. They were, they were Jews that had converted to Christianity, decided to follow Jesus, and whether through persecution or, or life or difficulty or maybe even just out of convenience, they are tempted to go back to the old Jewish way of things, to go back to the temple, to, to give sacrifices again, 
to, to live the old way of life. And the author of Hebrews here in chapter 7 is trying to urge these Hebrews to keep holding on. Keep holding on to Jesus, to keep trusting in him. And what the author of Hebrews tries to do in this chapter is to say that there is no middle ground. That, that there is no comparison between the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant, going back to the Jewish temple, making old Jewish sacrifices, compared to this new great high priest that we've received in Jesus. That, that Jesus is better than anything that Jewish practices could possibly offer. In order to do that, in order to make that point that Jesus is better than the Levites, he goes a step above by comparing the ancestry of the Levites, the Levites' father, Father Abraham, with the father of Jesus' priesthood, Melchizedek. So if I were to title this sermon, the title would be, My Priest is Better Than Yours. The main idea or the main command from, from this section and from the whole book really is to hope in Jesus, to hope in Jesus. And you could add on to that and not whatever else it may be. And there are two reasons that the author gives here. Number one, because Melchizedek is better than Abraham. Because Melchizedek is better than Abraham. The second reason is because Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. Because Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. And what happens in this, in this chapter is kind of like a stepping stone. You have, you have one description here in the beginning of, of who Melchizedek is. And then the author takes time to compare Melchizedek to Abraham and explain why Melchizedek is better. And then when it gets to Jesus, he explains why Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. And then he takes time to meditate on who Jesus is, right? So it's kind of like bookends that kind of mirror each other, right? When you fold them together. So, so who Melchizedek is, how he's better, how Jesus is better, and who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Now, this chapter, I'm sure you felt while reading it, is really hard. It's really complex. There's tons of illustrations, tons of references to Old Testament stuff that, that is difficult even for myself who, who got a master's degree in theology to understand. It took a lot of work for me. But this is precisely where the author of Hebrews left off in Hebrews chapter 5 when he said, we have a great deal to say about this, right? But we can't because you have become too lazy to understand. When the author of Hebrews gave that rebuke, this chapter is what he's talking about. He's saying, I'd like to talk more about Melchizedek, about this great high priest, about Jesus and how he functions in relation to the Old Testament. But if you're too lazy, if you don't take time to think, to apply yourself, to work hard to understand, you're not going to benefit from the glory that's inside. So I just want to say before we even jump into the chapter to begin with, to say at the outset that this is going to be really complex. It's going to be really heady. It's going to take a lot of thought. And the second thing I want to say is that that's good for you. It's good to take the time to chew on complicated truth. Right? So if I could draw on the, the main idea of a sermon from several months ago, don't be a lazy baby. Right? God wants us to actually think and understand how Jesus is better in light of these truths that he's revealing from the Old Testament. So let's look at reason number one. 
We should hope in Jesus because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And, and, and he starts by describing who Melchizedek is. Let's, let's look back at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, and then read to verse 3. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Jesus has entered there on our behalf, being the, the heavenly places, the inner sanctuary in heaven, as a forerunner, because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Remains a priest forever. The author of Hebrews takes the time to zoom into this idea of Melchizedek, this character in the Old Testament. And in order to explain who Melchizedek is, let's just go back and read the story ourselves. You see that in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. So go and grab your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. This is after Abraham receives the call from God to, to leave his father's land, the promise that he would make him into a great nation, bless him, right? And bless all the peoples of the earth through him. This is uh, after Abraham was in Egypt. He was in Canaan. His, his nephew Lot gets, gets kidnapped or captured by these Canaanite kings. And Abraham goes out and conquers five Canaanite kings. And then afterwards, you see the story of Melchizedek in verse 17 of Genesis 14. Let's, let's read together and see what happens. After Abram returned from defeating Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in Shava Valley, that is, the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Gave him a tenth of everything. That's if you, if you look again at, at verse 1, chapter 7, it describes that Abraham defeats five kings. But then when he gets to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Abraham isn't seeing red like a bull who's just charging at whatever enemy he sees in front of him. Rather, this king of Salem, instead of opposing Abraham, blesses him. Blesses him by, by God most high. And Abraham in response gives him a tenth of everything. All the plunder from the war, defeating the kings, coming back. He gives this king a tenth of everything that he has. So, so this king, Melchizedek, isn't like the other kings that get defeated. Rather, Abraham, after defeating all these other kings in the land, submits himself to this king, Melchizedek. It's almost like Melchizedek is a king above other kings, like a king of kings. 
And then what the author of Hebrews does after kind of laying out this story as to what happens in Genesis 14, he does the work of translating the original language in Hebrew. Right? He, he explains that the name Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness, king of righteousness, that, that the name literally means the righteous king. And then he's described as the king of Salem, and that place Salem stands for peace. So you have this king who's above all other kings, and he's described as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And then in the narrative of Genesis 14, Moses provides no backstory for Melchizedek at all. There's no dad, there's no mom, there's no family tree, there's no birth or death. And on top of all of that, this king of all kings, king of righteousness, king of, king of peace, is described as the priest of the most high God. So let's just piece all that together. You have Melchizedek, who's a king over all kings who's a king of righteousness, who's a king of peace, and an eternal priest. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Now, does Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7 mean that Melchizedek is Jesus? I'm sure you've heard people mention that that they come up with these fancy terms like theophany, almost like Jesus has this like peek behind the curtains before he actually shows up on the scene with his incarnation. Like he shows up in the furnace and then he shows up here in Genesis 14 as Melchizedek. Does this mean that Melchizedek literally is Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and there's a couple of reasons why I don't think that Melchizedek is like literally Jesus. For, for one, uh, Melchizedek is described as not having a father or mother and Jesus definitely has a mom. All right. Secondly, there's mention here about a genealogy and the lack of genealogy that Melchizedek has. But when you look at Jesus in the beginning of the Gospels, he has two genealogies. If you look at the beginning of Matthew and then also again at the beginning of Luke, Jesus is described as having a genealogy. And, and really that, that term that the author of Hebrews uses there is, is a hint to how he's using Melchizedek. When he says Melchizedek doesn't have a father or mother or genealogy, what he's really talking about isn't Melchizedek's actual person, as though he didn't have any ancestry before him, but the fact that there's no genealogy in the book of Genesis. There's no mention of Melchizedek. In the book of Genesis, there's all sorts of genealogies all over the place. I'm sure you skipped over them during your Bible reading plan, right? Where it talks about so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so. You read it over and over and over again. It's not just for the Israelite people or for the people that are following after Jesus, but evil people as well. And, and really what, what the author of Hebrews or what the author in Genesis is doing when Moses is writing the book of Genesis is kind of like giving a layout of the land, right? Kind of connecting dots as people give birth to different people, as they lead to different nations. But Melchizedek just kind of shows up, right? He just kind of shows up onto the scene. And he explains how it all kind of pieces together in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. So go back to Hebrews chapter 7 and read verse 4 with me. Or, or verse 3, actually. It says here that without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. He resembles the Son of God. So in other words, Melchizedek in Genesis 14 isn't supposed to actually be the Son of God, as though he literally is Jesus, but that he is Jesus literarily. 
right? He, he resembles him. He's a, he's a symbol. So, so I think Melchizedek was a real guy. But in the story of Genesis, Moses, the author of Genesis, makes no mention of Melchizedek's background in order to create a symbol, right, that points to Jesus in the future. So that the author of Hebrews can look back and read Genesis 14. And as he's preaching Genesis 14 through this letter, be able to say that Melchizedek resembles Jesus. He's connecting the dots between two authors, Moses and himself, but really one divine author behind it. That God intended to give no details about Melchizedek at all in Genesis 14. So he could give hints as to who Jesus would be like. In other words, Melchizedek is proof that Jesus' kingship, that Jesus' priesthood, what, what Jesus is about to do, isn't some continuation of what Israel did in the past. That, that when you read Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and all these different laws about sacrifices and things like that, the author of Hebrews is trying to point out that what Jesus is going to do is not like that stuff. The stuff that the people that he's writing to is tempted to go back to. But that what Jesus is doing in his priesthood is actually different. That he's actually a priest of a different kind. That while the Old Testament is trying to give sacrifices and, and give laws, that what Jesus is going to give is actually something better. And Melchizedek is kind of his textual ground for that. Now in Psalm 110, you even see God continue that with David's psalm, where he writes that God calls Jesus, right, his son, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, in the order of Melchizedek. So, so one of the interesting things as you read your Bible is seeing how the New Testament connects to the Old Testament. And notice here that, that David and Moses, they had no inkling about, about God the Son taking on flesh and kind of living among us. Right? If I sat down with, with Moses and had a conversation about whether or not he thought the second person of the Trinity would come and take on flesh and dwell among us and be a priestly sacrifice, he would have no idea what I'm talking about. And yet God, as he writes the Bible, is weaving hints in the Old Testament, right, in the book of Genesis, in the, in the Psalms. So when Jesus finally comes onto the scene, suddenly Psalm 110 and, and Genesis 14 pop with a color that you didn't see there before. See, if, if Melchizedek is be better than Abraham and the Levitical priesthood, then that means that Jesus must be better than Judaism. So, so if there's kind of a, a descending order of logic that we're going to follow as we go through this entire chapter, it kind of goes like this. It's three comparisons, really. It's Melchizedek is better than Abraham, right? Melchizedek is better than Abraham, which means Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood, Okay, which means that the hope of the Christian is better than the hope of the Israelite. That makes sense? So, so if Melchizedek is better than Abraham, that means that Jesus is better than the Levites. If Jesus is better than the Levites, that means that the hope that you receive as the inheritor of Jesus' promise is better than any hope that you can have by going back to the old covenant system. So now... Going into verse 4, the author of Hebrews begins to compare Melchizedek with Abraham. Begins to compare them. Verse 4. Now, consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. 
that is from the brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Who had the promises. So Abraham here is described as the what? The patriarch, right? Uh, people talk today about fighting the patriarchy. Israelites, literally a patriarchy, right? Comes down from Abraham. He's the patriarch. And that means that, that Abraham really is the father of the nation of Israel. It's kind of what we mean by that, right? I'm sure we sung songs like Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons have Father Abraham, right? I'm gonna get to the second half yet. But the idea here is that Abraham is the father of the Israelites. And Abraham, this, this guy who's kind of at the top of the spiritual food chain, gives Melchizedek a tenth. See, Israelites would give the Levites a tenth of everything. And it was part of kind of a recognition of the priestly function that the Levites had. You see, when, when the Israelites go into the promised land and they kind of divide up the land, the tribe of Levi gets nothing. They get no square footage at all, right? Kind of like those of us who rent an apartment, right? They have, they have no land. They own nothing. And the reason is because the Levites function as priests. So they kind of scatter throughout the land so that Israelites kind of wherever they live can offer sacrifices to God, right? They're, they're Levites that kind of spread amongst the tribes, right? And, and they bless the people by doing that, by serving them. Right, by being a mediator between them and God. And, and in response, what the Israelites would do in caring for kind of their brother tribe and their priestly function is they would give them a tenth of everything that they have. Right? So like a tenth of their cows, a tenth of their grain, and so on and so forth. Not, not just in sacrifice to God, but also in support of the priesthood. Does that make sense? Kind of serve them in response to the blessing that they have. Now Melchizedek also receives a tenth. And that means that he functions like a priest, right? He functions like a priest as a mediator between Abraham and God. And Melchizedek is able to bless Abraham like God does. And verse six says, Melchizedek blesses the one who receives the promise. And, and what promises Abraham receive in, in Genesis chapter 12? He says that through you, all nations will be what? Blessed, will be blessed. And so if Abraham's supposed to be the one who blesses all nations, that means he's a really important guy, right? He's a pretty important dude. And here, Melchizedek is blessing the one who's supposed to bless everyone else. So if Abraham's at the top of the food chain, spiritually, Melchizedek is higher than he is. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews is saying. But it goes even further than that. Read with me from verse 7. It says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Right, so if, if Levi is under Abraham and, and Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe, then that means that, that Levi is submitting himself to Melchizedek as well. Now, now you're hearing tithe, 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 right? And, and this is probably the only area in the New Testament where you see the word tithe happen over and over and over again. So just to answer the question, does this passage mean that you need to give 10% of your budget to the church? I don't think so. Right? You can wipe your sweat off, right? That's not what the text is saying. 
But since this, is the, since this is the one area in the Bible that talks about tithes so much, I'm going to go ahead and step aside from Hebrews 7 for a second and do a mini topical sermonette on giving. Okay, mini topical sermonette on giving with multiple points. Number one, if you're a visitor, especially if you're not a Christian here, we don't want your money. Right? So nothing I'm about to say applies to you. If you're a Christian who's part of another church, this does apply to you in giving to your church, but it doesn't apply to you in giving to this church. Second, And if you're not a Christian, I especially don't want you to give any money because God doesn't command that you to do that. Rather, he wants you to listen to the gospel I'm going to preach later, turn from your sin, and trust in him. Number two, you, even though you're not obligated to give a specific percentage, are obligated to give to the church if you're a member here. Right? In our church covenant, we, we commit to contribute cheerfully and regularly to support the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Right? We're going to recite that together just before we take the Lord's Supper this morning. And you can look at Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, all sorts of other New Testament passages where Paul seems to expect Christians to give cheerfully for the advance of the gospel. Right? He doesn't do that out of spite. He doesn't do that out of frustration. It's just the expectation. Number three. Even though the New Testament gives explicit commands to give, even though there are super clear passages about giving, Paul never mentions tithing. Even though he explains that Christians ought to give to the expense of the church and the advance of the gospel throughout the earth, he never mentions 10%. Never references this Old Testament command about tithing. Number four, when you look at the early church, you see that they give to all as they have need. We went over this in our membership class this morning, right? That they contributed to everyone who has need. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they give even above 10%, right? And out of the abundance of their heart, even though Ananias and Sapphira ended up doing some stuff and dying. Number five, the truth is that God doesn't own 10% of your money. He owns 100% of your money. Right? The problem with fixating on specific percentages is that it does two things. The first thing it does is it makes people that probably shouldn't be giving 10% feel guilty that they're not giving more. Right? The second thing that it does is that it makes people who probably should be giving more than 10% feel like they're okay because they're kind of meeting their, their Bible quota. Right? So, so I want to say to you that if you're in need, we still want you to give but give as much as you can out of your need. And our church specifically has a benevolence fund to help you if you are in financial need. So, so don't just reduce your giving if you feel like you're in a pinch, even though that's a fine thing to do. Also ask the church to help you. We wanna help you. We want to give to you as you have need. So feel free to talk to any of the pastors here. And, and really the pastoral com concern here when we talk about giving in general is not about making sure that you meet a quota or that you have the proper proportion in your income, but that you're obeying Jesus in giving faithfully. So if you're not giving and you're a member of the church and you're making money, biblically, you're in sin. God wants you to give and contribute to the church. That being said, if you are giving faithfully and you feel somehow guilty that you're not giving enough because you feel like you need to hit a certain number in order for God to be pleased in you, I just wanna lift that burden from your shoulders. It's not what God expects of you. Number six, that all those things being said, it is interesting to notice here that it was customary practice to give 10%, to give 10%, right? Before the Levitical law to give 10% to the Levites and the priests, you see Abraham here giving a 10th to Melchizedek, 
who's not of the Israelic system. You see, the same thing happened with Jacob in Genesis 28. After he receives a blessing from God, he gives a tenth, right, as, a, as an offering from God. So, so while obvious exceptions about pressing needs should be excluded, I want to say that if you have no idea where you should start, that's wise practice, not principle. I'm not saying that you're sinning if you do this, but it's wise practice to give at least 10%. Number seven, this isn't because our church needs the money. This isn't because the church needs the money. I know that if you look at the back of the bulletin, it seems like we're perpetually in debt, right? That's not what's happening, right? Uh, you look at the first week of the month and we're gonna rock it ahead and then it's gonna go back down and it's gonna rock it ahead again. Our budget doesn't determine whether or not God succeeds, right? Our budget is just our best guess to what our church is going to give and how we're gonna steward that money that we get, right? So God isn't somehow displeased if we miss budget. He's not super excited and proud of us if we meet budget, right? We're just trying to be a good steward of what we have. Number eight, if you look at the situation of Abraham as well as Jacob here in Genesis 28, they both tithe, not out of an obligation, right? Not even in order to, to receive something, as though they're giving money and they're expecting blessing in return. But they give out of a response to God's blessing. See, God blesses first, and then they respond with the tithe. God blesses them first, and then they respond with the tithe. And when we give, we're doing the same thing. Right? If, if you give expecting God to kind of give proportionally to you, like so many prosperity gospel preachers do, right? bring your tithe into the storehouse, expect blessings to pour down your life, you're in for a world of disappointment. That's not how God works. See, God has already given you everything that you need in Jesus. And what we do in response, our gratitude for what God has done for us is we give generously. Right, and obedience to Jesus. So give to your church, give generously to those around you. Right, And I'd say 10% is a great place to start. Sermonette over. Back to Hebrews 7. This passage in Hebrews 7 is not focused on how Christians should give, but on what Abraham's giving means. Okay, what Abraham's giving means. Okay, so, so logic goes like this. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Right, the superior always blesses the inferior, which means that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, which means that Melchizedek is superior to the Levites, which means Jesus is superior to the Levites. Does that make sense? Superior blesses the inferior, therefore Melchizedek is superior. What the author of Hebrews is doing is taking the entire priest system of the old covenant Israel and showing how all of it doesn't even compare to what Melchizedek does here in Genesis 14. In other words, if I were to sum up what he's saying, my priest is better than yours. That's what he's saying. And Jesus himself does this interesting thing where he points out the exact same thing in John chapter 8. Right? Turn back in your Bible. Go to, go to John chapter 8, verse 37. John chapter 8, verse 37. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees here, right? Or, or the Jews actually, just broadly. And, and just before this verse here, uh, the Jews identify themselves as descendants of Abraham, right? That's who we are. And this is Jesus' response to them in verse 37. It says, I know 
that you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then, you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. And here's a, here's a left hook in the face that happens in verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Right? If, you, if you thought Jesus only ever had nice things to say, John 8 tells otherwise. What is Jesus doing here? He's looking at physical descendants of Abraham, right? And all their life, they've been told that they're God's chosen people on the basis of their physical descent, right? Their genealogy that led them all the way down. And Jesus is saying, the fact that you're trying to kill me means that you're not doing what your patriarch does. Because what does the patriarch do when he goes in front of Melchizedek? Does he try to kill Melchizedek? No. He blesses Melchizedek, right? He offers a tithe to Melchizedek. He submits himself. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, if you're trying to kill me and I'm in the order of Melchizedek, then you're not like your father at all. You're rather like your spiritual father, Satan. In other words, being a descendant of Abraham has no use if you don't do what Abraham does, right? Being of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, has no use if you don't do what Abraham does. If they reject Christ's priesthood, then that means that they're not really of Abraham at all. And there's tons of applications like that for us, right? If you're a kid here, that means that your parents' faith doesn't make you a Christian, doesn't make you holy. That means if you're here only because your spouse kind of drug you and, and obligated you to sit here in this pew, you can have no assurance on the basis of your family member's faith. Your faith is your faith. And if you turn away from Jesus, then that means that you're not of Jesus, no matter what your blood does. You see, the Christian faith is not inherited by blood, but by belief, but by belief. That makes sense. And if Abraham submits to Melchizedek as a priest and we submit to Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, that means that you and I are true descendants of Abraham. Right? We don't have to join the Israelites in order to be part of God's people. See, Abraham and Christians belong in the same order, not the Levitical priesthood, but the priesthood of Melchizedek. See, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons have Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Okay, next. What are we supposed to do in response to that? We are supposed to submit to Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. That's what we do. See, everyone is going to bow the knee to King Jesus. Your boss is going to bow the knee to King Jesus. The Supreme Court is going to bow the knee to King Jesus. Mohammed 
is going to bow the knee to King Jesus. You will bow the knee to King Jesus. So don't switch allegiances now. Stay with him. Let's look precisely at what the author calls us to do. I'm going to try to speed through his second point here. It means that Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. So if Melchizedek is better than Abraham, Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. Verse 11. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing concerning that tribe about priests. So the author is saying here that if if the Levitical priesthood, sorry, I'm going to start mixing up words because my mouth is a little chap, right? If the Levitical priesthood doesn't bring about perfection, right, or if it were to, then Jesus would have been a Levite, right? If that was God's plan from the beginning, Jesus would have come from the line of Levi, but he doesn't. He comes from Judah, right? And this idea of perfection here isn't just talking about being made perfect, like, like you're spotless or, or that you have, you're immaculate, right, or, or whatever it may be. It's really referring to kind of this level of cleanliness that priests would need to have. In Exodus 29, it would describe priests need to cleanse, them, cleanse themselves. And the word that they would use there is perfected that you would need to be perfected before you could enter into the Holy of Holies, right, in order to function as a mediator. In other words, what the, what the author is trying to say here is that true access to God can't come from the Levitical priesthood because Jesus doesn't come from them, right? If the Son of God was going to go with Israel's way, then he would have come from Levi's line, but he doesn't, which means that the Levitical way of perfection actually doesn't work. Right, here's, here's the second comparison that he makes. So the first thing is that Jesus is a Judaite, right? And, and Levites are the Levites. The second comparison here is that the law is different than the oath that Jesus gets. Okay, the law is different than the oath that Jesus gets. Verse 15. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it is weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath, Made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Okay. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that the law doesn't work. At least not in the way that you intend. Right, that if you go to the law expecting for it to clean you and, and be effective in saving you and being an effective priesthood before God, it's not going to work. Now, it's not that the law is bad. I think the author of Hebrews is saying, throw your Old Testament out, right? Kind of carve it out and, and chuck it out the window. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. He references Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 precisely because he values the Old Testament, right? I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to say 
is that if you go to the law, if you go to the Old Testament expecting salvation to come from it, you're asking it to do something it wasn't made to do, right? Those instructions aren't gonna make you better. What they do is they reveal how bad you are, okay? I've been bowling a lot for the past couple of weeks. There's a prodigy at the bowling alley in Cerritos. His name's Evan. He bowls really well. So I'll bowl with him. Clark and I have been bowling with him as well. Uh, you could be praying for his salvation. Um, and I'll ask him for tips all the time, right? So I'll go up, I'll, I'll chuck a ball, I'll go back. I'll be like, Evan, what do I need to do? Right? And be like, your hand's not under the ball, John. So I'll go back up, I'll do it again. I'll come back. I'll be like, Evan, what do I need to do? He's like, your hand's still not under the ball, John. I'll go, chuck the ball again, come back. Evan, what do I need to do? And Evan looks at me and goes, John, you know what you need to do. <laughs> the problem isn't you knowing what you need to do. The problem is you're not good. <laughs> the law is like Evan. The way you get near to God isn't through these regulations that, that the old covenant brings. The purpose of the law is to expose how sinful you are, right? That, that you need to get good. But the law never gives you the power to be able to conquer that. Right, to conquer that. In contrast to that, right, what Jesus gets is an oath. Right? He doesn't receive powerless priests. You see, the priesthood that Jesus receives isn't on the basis of some weak law that just exposes how bad we are, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. See, God doesn't call you to trust in your own ability or your meticulous following of rules, but in a person. In Jesus. You see, rules don't fix you. Look at what verse 18 describes the law as. It's, it's weak. It's unprofitable. If you go to the law looking for strength, you're going to be crippled and broke. But in verse 19, it says that a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is exactly what we want to tell you. Christians are not interested in giving you more rules. It's kind of expecting you to improve your life and get better, right? The reality is that you and I are sinners and there's nothing that we can do in our own power to make us right before a holy God. But God in his kindness sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly man, truly God. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could. And on the cross, he paid the penalty that you and I deserved for our sin and he died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father into the most holy place because he was perfected in his death. He was able to enter into the very presence of God, which means that if you put your trust, not in your own ability, but in Jesus, if you turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, you don't need to make your life better. You can give your ruined life to Jesus and he is powerful and capable enough to save you. We'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Feel free to talk to me or any of the members around you about Jesus and what it looks like to follow him. You see, ask not what you can do for Christ, but see what Christ can do for you. See, Jesus with an oath becomes a guarantee of a covenant better than any law could possibly provide. And the reason why it's a guarantee is because it's not based on you. It's based on him. 
And Jesus is perfect. He was perfected, and he will continue to be perfect. You see, the law places expectations on you, but the oath provides promises for you because the expectations were met by Christ. Jesus guarantees that when you are in him, you are going to receive true covenant blessings, real perfection by which you can actually draw near to God. The Levites had to do a ton of sacrifices, ceremonies in order to enter into a tent. You are going to be able to enter into the most intimate place in heaven itself because of what Christ has done for you. Here's a third comparison. Levites die, Jesus lives. Levites die, Jesus lives. Verse 23. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. I'll make this really simple. Levites are people, right? And because they're people, sinful human beings, they die, which is why they have to keep getting replaced. They have to have kids so they could grow up to be priests so they could keep making sacrifices. But Jesus lives one life forever, nothing to renew again, right? You, you see a similar kind of anxiety that can happen with, with death over and over again when you look at Genesis 50 with Joseph, Joseph's brothers, right? Uh, this is after Joseph kind of reveals himself as a son, right? They tell him he receives forgiveness, yada, yada. And then Jacob, uh, their dad and their family all move into Egypt, right? And they live in peace with Joseph. And then Genesis 49 through 50, an interesting thing happens. Uh, Jacob dies, right? So Joseph's dad dies and Joseph's brothers get concerned that, that maybe Joseph was just kind of waiting until his dad died before he enacted real revenge on them. So they go to him and beg him for forgiveness and say like, we are slaves and things like that. And then Joseph has to forgive them again. Sometimes we can feel the same way with Jesus or with other people in our lives, right? That the people are just kind of holding out on us until someone else comes along. Or, or your boss is gonna kind of cover all the weight for you, but the moment that your boss leaves, your, your new boss is gonna hang you out to dry. And sometimes we can start to think that's the same way with our own salvation, that, that if Jesus either reneges on his promise or if Jesus disappears, that our salvation is, isn't secure. And we know that Jesus is always gonna be there and he's gonna be stable and he's gonna be up there. But sometimes we wonder if Jesus is gonna change his mind because of a sin that you commit because of a fight that you got into, right? Because of something that you feel is so deeply tainted that, that it's not gonna be able to overcome or, or what Jesus has done for you. Or, or maybe that Jesus, if he really knew just how bad you were, that he would somehow change his mind. What, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that your sin, the stuff that you struggle with week to week, the stuff that you struggled with last week, stuff that you're gonna struggle with this week can't stop Jesus' heartbeat. He lives for you. He intercedes for you. And so long as he lives, he will save you completely, completely. That payment is complete. And he's praying for you right now. He's empowering you by his spirit to hang on 
even in difficult days. He doesn't just want to convince you of your salvation. He wants to complete his salvation in you. And trust God's word when he says that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Verse 26. The author of Hebrews concludes now by meditating on who Jesus is. For this is the kind of high priest that we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. This is the kind of priest that we need. One who's better to, than the Levitical priest in every single way. One who's truly holy, perfect, righteous, exalted. And notice here that he says that, that he doesn't have to keep making sacrifices. There's one sacrifice. And that sacrifice is enough. That payment is done. And while the law appoints weak men as high priests, the oath appoints a perfect son. A perfect son. He has perfect access to God, which means that his salvation is guaranteed. Not because you're awesome, because you could read verse 26, and it's an exact mirror image of everything that you're not. We're wicked, guilty, defiled. We walk with sinners, and we're stuck in the muck of this earth. But good news for you, Jesus is not like you. He is holy, undefiled, innocent, separated from sinners, exalted in the heavens, and he ever intercedes for you. And it's in his complete work that we can place our hope. One last image for us before we close in prayer. You know what's just interesting in Genesis 14? when Melchizedek gives his blessing to Abraham, what does he bring out? You can turn back in your Bibles if you want to see. Go back to Genesis 14. I'll just close here. Genesis 14, verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem. When he blesses Abraham, what does he do? He brings out bread and wine. And why does Melchizedek do this? I don't know. <laughs> Right? I don't know. I don't know why he does this. I think I do know why God does this, though. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. Right? Blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And what does Jesus do? He comes out. He brings out the bread and the wine. And then he blesses you in his death that your sin can be handed over to him. And Jesus, in, in exchange, gives you his grace. What greater of a blessing could you ask for? Why would you turn to anything else? And right now, at the end of this sermon, we have the privilege of being able to celebrate that blessing that Jesus has given for you. His body given for you. His blood spilled for you. Let's pray. God, we pray 
that your grace would be so sweet to us in Christ that sin would be bitter. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to so delight in the promise of Jesus that we wouldn't look to anything else, that we would look to your son. And we thank you for the grace that we have in Christ, that he is enough for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and take the next couple of minutes to share takeaways with a neighbor. If you're, if you're a guest here, uh, this is something that we do. We just talk about stuff that we thought about from the sermon. Uh, don't feel like you have an obligation to share anything. If you're a visitor, you can just snoop in on other people's conversations. This is what we do now. Let's go ahead and do that.